Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. Well, if you would, take your copy of God's Word and turn to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, as we continue to make our way through the book of Hebrews, we're going to be looking at chapter 4, verses 1 through 10 this morning. Hebrews 4, 1 through 10. So I'll read our passage for us, and then we will take a moment to stop and pray and ask for the Lord's help. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on, so then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let's pray. Father, what precious and glorious promises you hold out to us in your word. And Father, we confess to you that we're so easily distracted by the temptations of this world. We're so easily distracted by the deceitfulness of sin, as we even talked about last week. And so, Father, we, we desperately need your word this morning. We, we, are, we are so thankful that you sent Jesus to come and to live and to die in our place and to victoriously rise from the grave. And because of what he has done, you have sent your spirit to dwell in us. And we are so thankful that your spirit keeps us and opens our eyes to see your truth. But Father, we, we just ask, because we are in desperate need of your spirit, doing that very thing for us this morning and every day of our lives to continue to help us to see truth and to not be distracted by the deceitfulness of sin and to help us rest in your precious promises like the promise we see before us this morning that, that there is a rest, your rest that awaits us. 
And so, Father, I pray that your promises would be precious to us this morning, that, that your word would challenge us and convict us to be sure that we are caring well for one another in this body of believers so that we leave no one behind, so that we pray for one another and encourage one another and exhort one another daily as long as it is called today. So, Father, I pray that your word would create that desire and that drive and the courage and the compassion to be this kind of a church for one another. And so, Father, I ask for your help this morning. I pray that you would guide my words, allow me to only say what is true of you, what is true of your word, and that you would protect all of us from the deceitfulness of sin and from being led astray. And instead, I pray, Father, that you would guide us into all truth for the glory of your name and the good of your people. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it won't surprise anyone if I say to you that we live in a busy world, right? If you approach someone, the things they're going to say to you is, what? I'm really busy. I'm really busy. Things have been busy. And most of the time, look, they're, they're telling the truth. It's, it's true. Our, our lives are filled with appointments and meetings and assignments and errands and family responsibilities and work obligations and, and volunteer work and even including involvement in the local church. We have busy lives. No one can or should deny that truth. And you know, it's interesting to think about how technological innovation was, was supposed to make us less busy, right? That was the promise of technology back in the day, right? Long time ago when, when uh, you know, washing machines came into the home and then a little bit later in the 50s, you had microwave ovens coming to the home and dishwashers became affordable and these things came into homes and uh, these innovations were supposed to dramatically reduce the amount of time we spend working at home, and then of course later in time, and, and a little bit more recent history, computers came into homes, and uh, some, we now have smartphones and smart homes, and all this was supposed to make life easy. It was supposed to, the promise was that it would free up time for leisure, right? We were supposed to have time to sit on our back porch and sip lemonade and read a book. But of course, technology has not brought to us the rest that it promised. Our culture simply doesn't allow for it. If we have time freed up by one piece of technology, that's fine. It just gives us more time to be busy with something else, right? We just, we don't, we don't pursue less work and less busyness. We just rearrange the busyness, right? We just fill our lives with more busyness and with more things to do. Furthermore, and perhaps even more damaging is the busyness that technology has brought to our hearts and to our minds, right? Even in those spare moments when we think, you know, this is an opportunity for some downtime, some time to relax, some time to rest, what do we tend to do? We pull out our phone, we hop on our computer, and we scroll through social media, we mindlessly absorb, quote, content created by, quote, influencers, and we fool ourselves into thinking we're relaxing 
But the reality is it's actually creating all kinds of mental battles and struggles of our soul. We find ourselves dealing with envy and resentment and bitterness and frustration and greed and lust and worry and anxiety. And you think you've taken a break from manual labor or distracted yourself from the task at hand, but you were far from resting in those moments. So we're busy with work. We're busy with manual labor. We're busy with all kinds of tasks. We're mentally busy with worry and anxiety and emotional struggles and on and on. I mean, look, it's rare, if ever, that you hear someone say, how, how are you doing? And their response is, I feel really rested and refreshed. Yet, it's something we all long for. Something we all want. And the reason we long for it is because we were created to experience it. That's what we were created to experience. But sin ruined the world. And sin robs us of peace and contentment and joy. And yes, even rest. Right? That's, that's the rest that we long for. Peace, contentment, and joy. Right? It's, it's not the rest. Nobody really wants to sit around and do nothing all day, every day for the rest of their lives. Right? That's, that's, not, that's not what rest is. That's not what even is being referenced here in this passage. But what we all certainly want to experience is what it's like to have a mind, a mind and a soul that is at rest, that is free from worry, anxiety, and greed, to be free from the battle raging in our souls over sin, to be free from lack of contentment, to be free from envy and jealousy, to be free from temptation, right? It's that kind of rest that we all long for. And it's that kind of rest that Jesus was talking about, right? In Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30, when Jesus says, well-known passage, right? Come to me. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest. For your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, there's a kind of rest that can only be found in Jesus Christ. And it is a glorious, incomprehensible rest that can be experienced in even some small way right now in our lives, right now as we trust in Christ. But it's just one small taste of what it will be like when it's fully realized in all eternity, when we're there in the presence of Christ in the new heavens and in the new earth, rest that comes from all of our struggles coming to an end in our minds and our hearts being at perfect peace and joy and contentment in the presence of Christ, our Savior. And you see, it's that kind of rest that the author of Hebrews is laying out before us this morning. 
He wants us to know that this rest is available to you. This rest is available to me. That this promise of entering God's rest still remains for us even today. And so there's four truths the author of Hebrews wants to remind us of about God's rest. So here here are the four truths about God's rest that the author of Hebrews gives us. Number one, we should fear others not obtaining God's rest. We should fear our not obtaining it, but we should also fear others not obtaining God's rest. Number two, we can only enter God's rest by faith. Number three, do not put off entering God's rest. And finally, we will only find true rest in God's rest. Now, I just want you to know ahead of time, we're going to spend most of our time on that first truth. That we should fear not obtaining God's rest, not only for us, but also for others. We should fear not obtaining God's rest. And I think that's the emphasis of this passage. And once you get through verse 1, the author of Hebrews spends a lot of time making argument, an argument from the Old Testament scriptures as to why this rest still remains for us. And we're going to work our way through that as we work through these other truths. And we'll quickly look at those last three truths at the end. But I want us to really zero in on this first and primary truth for us this morning. That we should fear not obtaining God's rest. Look there with me at verse 1 again. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us reach it. Now, right there in verse 1, it begins with the word, therefore, and we, we know we've learned that when we see that word, we have to look at what's come before. It's, it's telling us that, that the author of Hebrews is continuing to build an argument. So let's just briefly remind ourselves of what we saw in last week's passage there at the end of chapter 3. We were reminded that we have an obligation to care for one another. You see that there in chapter 3, verse 12, take care, brothers. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. That we have an obligation to care for our brothers and sisters in Christ that we gather with week in and week out. That we covenant together with in a local church body so that we can protect one another from falling prey to an evil and unbelieving heart. And the way we do that, verse 13 tells us, is by exhorting one another every single day, as long as it is called today, so that no one, so that none of us are hardened by the deceitfulness for each other. Because, and then the author references what happened to the people of Israel, that they themselves in the wilderness heard God's voice But because they did not believe, chapter 3, verse 18 says that he swore that they would not enter his rest. Verse 19, so we see that they were unable to enter, meaning enter his rest, because of what? Unbelief. Because they didn't trust God. But as the author reflected on what happened to the people of Israel, 
and on what the, the author of Psalm 95 that he's been quoting throughout chapter 3 is, as the author of Hebrews reflects on these realities, what he sees is there's still a promise of entering that rest for us. Maybe they didn't get to enter it. Maybe because of their unbelief, they were cut off from entering God's rest. But, but there's good news. He's telling us there is good news for us this morning. There, there's still a promise that remains for you and I to enter God's rest. And that is glorious good news for us. Now listen. The, the author says, what I just read, look, the promise of entering his rest still stands. Therefore, let us fear. Let us fear lest any of us should have failed to reach it. Now, if you happen to be looking at the NIV, it, it softens the blow of this passage a little bit. Because the NIV says um, something like, uh, uh, be, be concerned, right? Be careful, I think is what it says. Be careful that you fail to enter his rest. But that's not, that's not what the word means. It doesn't mean let us be careful, as it says in the NIV. The word means fear it. In fact, the, the root word of the original word is where we get the word phobia, right? What does phobia mean? Right? If you have arachnophobia, you're not careful about spiders, right? You fear spiders. You're terrified of spiders, right? If you have claustrophobia, you're, you're not concerned about the chance that you might be in a small space. No, you're terrified, right, of being trapped in a small space. This, this word means to fear it. Let us fear lest any of you should have failed to have reached this rest that has been promised to us by God. Now, there's a lot going on in this first verse of chapter 4 that we need to try and wrap our minds around. So just let me, let me list some of the concepts all going on here in this first verse. First, this command, the command of verse 1 that, that, that we should fear, that, that command is for us together. For us as God's people, for us as a local church who have covenanted together. It is a command that is directed to those who are believers in the fellowship of a local church. And it is a fear that is directed toward the prospect of what could happen to any of us. Right? You see that? Let us fear lest any of you. It's that same language that's used in chapter 3 about being concerned for each other. That we should fear not only that we might fail to enter it, but I should fear that you might fail to enter it. And you should fear that I might fail to enter it. Meaning we should be ultimately concerned for one another's eternal well-being. That we should long to, to be sure to work hard to encourage one another, to exhort one another, so that, so that none of us fail to reach God's rest in the last day. And the reason that's so important is because what I want you to see is that Hebrews chapter 4, verse 1 is not about evangelism. Chapter 4, verse 1 is not about being afraid that people outside the church won't enter his rest, though we certainly should be. We certainly should care for them and be concerned about them. But that's not what chapter 4, verse 1 is about. It's a command for us to fear what could happen to each other 
to fear the possibility that one of us might fail to reach God's rest. We'll, we'll talk more about that in a moment, but I just want you to see that there in the passage. Second, this concept of not reaching God's rest, according to the author of Hebrews, should terrify us. It should make us afraid. Now that's strange language in some ways, right? That, that we should be afraid of not entering God's rest. But I think you'll see as we move forward exactly why that is. But third, that fear shouldn't paralyze us. Instead, it is to motivate us to care for one another well as God's people. It reiterates what we learned at the end of chapter 3, that we have an obligation to care for each other, to exhort one another daily so that we're not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This is just building on that truth and reality that we have an obligation to each other. And the fourth implication I just want you to notice is that that, that if this command is, is that we should fear missing out on this rest, then it must mean this rest is something glorious, right? It must be glorious, and missing out on it must be unthinkably horrible. And we have all of this pouring out to us in this one short verse. So if we're going to understand why we must care for one another in this way to the degree that we are, should be fearful of the thought that someone might not make it, that someone might fail to reach God's rest, then we have to understand the nature of that rest and why it should be a fearful thing that we not make it. And I can think of no better place than Revelation chapter 14 verses 9 through 13 that shows us this contrast between being cut off from God's rest and entering into God's rest. So listen with me to Revelation chapter 14, verses 9 through 13. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. You see, there are two eternal destinies laid out before us in Revelation 14. One is the destiny of enduring God's eternal wrath and condemnation. And when we endure such torment apart from Christ, we have no rest day and night for all eternity. And yet, on the opposite side of that, in Christ... 
Revelation 14, 13 says, we can have a rest from our labors. We can rest for all eternity. So you see, one biblical way to think about eternity is either a place of peace and rest or a place of no rest and eternal torment. And so when the author says to us in verse 1, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it, that's the weight behind what's being said in verse 1. We ought to be terrified that one of us might not experience eternal rest because the opposite of eternal rest is eternal wrath and torment from God toward fallen man apart from Christ. So we have an obligation, right? The book of Hebrews continues to lay on us together an obligation to care for one another. Right? It's this, it's this sense that as a local church, we are to have a no man left behind mentality. Right? We often don't think of the local church in that way, but that's what the author of Hebrews is communicating here, right? We should be driven and motivated by being sure that we all make it together, right, to the very end, to the very last day, that we will all enter into God's rest for all eternity. We don't sprint ahead without regard for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Instead, we're called to care for one another and to be motivated by a deep and abiding concern that we will all make it to the end together. And that means all of us. Right? If we're going to obey God, we have to be willing to live spiritually unselfish lives that bring others along with us. Right? As, I, as I thought about this, I, I try to think, well, what's, what's an example of this that, 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 that I've experienced, like not, not spiritually, but just as, a, as an analogy? And the best thing I can come up with is, is running. I hate running. All right, I can play basketball for three hours without complaining, and I'll just do it. But if I have to get out and run, I, I have a love-hate relationship with running. I do it, but I really, I do it almost because I have to. When I start running, I'm already wanting it to end, right, before I even take about 10 steps. But I, Lori, however, my wife, I didn't tell her I was going to talk about her, but I'm going to do it anyway. So Lori, my wife, on the other hand, grew up running, right? She loves running. She enjoys running. And so, our, our, you know, throughout our marriage, she's always been the one running ahead, and I've been keeping up. But look, me trying to keep up with her pace has, has made me get better, right? She would, as we started out, run a little slower so that I could keep up. I could run a little farther because I was running alongside her, and she kind of pulled me along, right? Like 90% of our marriage has been that way of, of her running ahead of me. But then over the past six months or so, she's been dealing with an injury. She hasn't been able to run as much, but praise be to God, she's feeling better, beginning to run more. And Madeline, one of my daughters, and I have been running together. And so Lori has begun to run with us now and trying to get back up to speed. And so, so now it's reversed a little bit, right? So we're, Madeline and I are slowing down a little bit and allowing her to run along with us. And because of that, she's been able to run twice the distance she could when she was running by herself because we're right there with her. But we're, we're willing to slow down and she keeps up with us and pulls us along, right? So, so there was a season of life, most of our life, where I needed her to pull me along. 
And now there's a season of life where she needs me to pull her along. But we don't leave each other behind. Right? We slow down and let the other person run along because we know that if we do that, that encourages them to keep going. But we also don't slow all the way down to where they were. That doesn't help them at all, right? We got to run ahead. We got to go a little bit faster than they are so, so we can pull them along. Look, that's what, that's what this is calling us to be for one another in this church. That we'll pull each other along. And sometimes, look, sometimes I'm going to need you to run ahead of me. And sometimes you're going to need me to run ahead of you. And sometimes you're going to need the person beside you to pull you along. And sometimes you're going to need them to pull you along. But the one thing we don't do is run this life with Jesus without regard for the people sitting next to us. We don't leave anyone behind. Right? We should be filled with fear that that could happen. Right? That's what, this is what discipleship looks like. We talk about that a lot in this church. But this is what we're being commanded to do in chapter 4, verse 1. To spend time investing in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ. To allow others to invest in our lives. So that none of us, in the end, are found to have failed to reach God's eternal rest. Now, I know it's strange language, right? That, that should we live in constant fear? I'm not saying every day we should wake up, right, in night sweats, <laughs> fearful of what's going to happen to our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's, that's not what this passage is saying. But it is saying that we should fear the possibility of such a thing happening. How could we not, right? How could you not fear that happening if you really loved your brothers and sisters in Christ? How does the prospect of them not entering into God's rest, how does it not fill you with terror, right? It ought to fill us with terror. It ought to cause fear to well up within us. And that ought to motivate us to care for one another well. So then, that's to drive us in our care for one another. It's to drive us in our discipleship of one another that we, that we fear that someone should seem to have failed to, to reach God's rest. But how is it that we enter into that rest? And that brings us to, to our second of the four truths. We can only enter God's rest by faith. So look with me there at verse 2. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So what verse 2 is telling us is that the Israelites, when they were rescued from Egypt, when God miraculously brought them out of Egypt with the ten plagues and, 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 and had them pass through the dry land, through the Red Sea and the, the pillar of, of cloud by day and fire by night, all these miraculous things happening all around them. And they heard God proclaim that he is a kind and long-suffering God, that he will be patient with them and show mercy upon them, right? That was all good news coming from God to them, right? There was tons of good news spoken to the people of Israel. But hearing that, just hearing it, verse 2 says, did not bring them any benefit. Why? 
because they didn't believe it. They didn't trust God to do what he said he was going to do. And therefore, verse 3 says that he swore in his wrath that they would not enter his rest. Now, if you read verse 3, it sounds like a really strange argument that the author of Hebrews is making, right? Let's just read it at its face. Verse 3 says, For we who have believed enter that rest as he has said. Now just pause there. Right? If you read that, you say, We who believe enter that rest as he said. What you expect to read is something like, Those who believe enter God's rest. But that's not what it says, right? So it says, we, have, we who have believed enter that rest as he has said, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So what, what is the author of Hebrews getting at here by quoting this statement of wrath on his people that prevented them from entering his rest? What is the argument that he's making? Well, the argument continues in the second half of verse 3 and into verses 4 and 5. So look there at the second half of verse 3. He says, Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, They shall not enter my rest. So what is the author of Hebrews getting at here? Here's, here's what he's getting at. And I love this Listen, I love this about reading New Testament authors and the author of Hebrews in particular. Right? This gives us insight on how we are to read the Old Testament scriptures. All right, so, so, so track with me here because it's fascinating to watch what the divinely inspired author of Hebrews sees when he reads the Old Testament. So this is what he sees. In Genesis, the beginning of Genesis chapter 2, right, we come to the the, the six days of creation are over, and God's finished, right? You're familiar, most of you are familiar with that story. God's finished with creation. Beginning of Genesis 2 is the seventh day. And on the seventh days, it says there in verse 4 of, of Hebrews 4, God rested on the seventh day from all his works. So, so often when we think about the seven days of creation, we think, well, the seventh day was the day of God's rest. So is that rest over? Is, is it done? And what the author of Hebrews is saying, well, it can't be done. It could not have been done because, look, when the people were delivered from Egypt, when they were rescued, God said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to offer rest to you. You can still enter my rest. Here it is. Now, they disobeyed, they didn't believe, and so they couldn't enter his rest. But the fact that he told them they couldn't enter his rest means there's still rest available. It's still there. It didn't end in Genesis chapter 2 in the beginning. There's still God's rest available to us, right? That's the argument the author is making. He's simply reading God's word, and he's saying, apparently God's rest wasn't over. Because he still offered it to his people, and they were cut off from it. But the fact that they were cut off from it means it's still available. And that's glorious good news for you and I. So that's why he says in verse 3, we who have believed are entering that rest. It's still available for us to enter into by faith in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And he is saying to us that we should not take lightly that this opportunity still exists. And that brings us to the third of the fourth truths. 
do not put off entering God's rest. Don't put it off, right? You see there in verse 6 as he continues his argument. He says, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, meaning it's rest. So he's saying, look, I've, we, we've looked at the Old Testament. God's rest happened on the seventh day, but apparently it's still continuing in some sense because he tells his people that they can enter it when they come out of Egypt. So that it remains for some to enter it. Verse 6, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Now just pause there. This is interesting because earlier he said they didn't enter because of what? Unbelief. But here he says they didn't enter because of what? Disobedience. Which, by the way, simply means that unbelief is a form of disobedience. And that disobedience finds its root ultimately in unbelief. The fruit of unbelief is disobedience. But yet he goes on to say in verse 7, and he again appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So see, even here in verse 7, you can hear his argument. Look, he's saying, as he said through David so long afterward, he's talking now, he's talking about Psalm 95. So not only is it, okay, it didn't end on the seventh day of creation. Well, okay, so somebody can say, well, maybe it ended when, when God's people entered the promised land. Maybe that was the end of the rest. Well, no, because Psalm 95, David is still talking about entering God's rest. He's still talking about it. So long afterward, David is still saying, there's rest available for you and for me. Which is why he says in verse 8, if Joshua had given them rest, when, meaning when they crossed the Jordan, when they finally entered the promised land, was that it? Was that the rest we've all been waiting for? He says, no, that, that's not it. Joshua didn't even give it to them. Because if he had, he wouldn't have spoken of another day later on, like he did in Psalm 95 through David. Which is another quick aside. The author of Hebrews leaves us with no doubt how he views the Old Testament being the word of God. David wrote Psalm 95, but who does Psalm 95, who does the author of Hebrews say is speaking in Psalm 95? God. God spoke through David, right? God's word is inspired. It is, it is his words that we're reading this morning. And, and so we come with absolute authority saying, verse 9, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And he says to us, do not put it off. You see, that's what the people of Israel did. They heard glorious good news from God over and over again. And I know sometimes people read the Old Testament and think, man, God is full of wrath and condemnation. And it's certainly true. There are times that he does bring punishment to his people. But if you read the Old Testament carefully, like even if you read the law, right? Read the law about the sacrificial system. And what you're going to see over and over and over and over again at the end of every section of the sacrificial system is what? God offering forgiveness and mercy to his people if they would just do what he called them to do. 
Right? All you got to do is come in repentance before me and I'll forgive you. Right? Here's, here's the way. Here's what you need to do. But they continually refused. They disobeyed. They turned their back on God. They rebelled. And so David said to us in Psalm 95, and the author of Hebrews says to us right here, right now, don't be like them and don't put it off. He's saying to you and I, look, don't, don't wait to get right with Jesus this afternoon. Don't wait till tomorrow. Don't wait till next week. Don't wait till next month. Don't wait till next year. Don't wait till you think you have your life where it needs to be or get your life together. Don't wait till you're married. Don't wait till you have kids. Don't wait till you're a grandparent, right? Don't wait for any of that. Get right with Jesus. Enter into his rest when? Today. Today. It is a risky enterprise to put off things that have eternal consequences. And so I plead with you, if any of you in this room have not repented of your sin and turned to Christ in faith, I plead with you to do it today, right now. Come to Christ, confess your sin before him, and look to him as your only hope. Look to him who came and lived a perfect life here for you in your place so that you would not be held guilty for your life. Christ's life stands in your place. Turn to him who laid down his life for sinners like you and I, for all who would trust in him, and he drank the cup of God's wrath to the very bottom so that you would not have to endure the condemnation and the wrath of God that we read about in Revelation 14. He took it on himself. This is good news. It is good news that you are hearing today and God is saying to you and he's saying to me, if you've not trusted in that good news, do it today. Do not harden your hearts as in the day of the rebellion. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Don't put off entering into God's rest. The invitation still stands today as we read earlier. Jesus still says today, come to me all who are weary, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And that brings us to our final concluding truth. We will only find rest in God's rest. Look there with me at verse 10. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his now, what does this mean? What does verse 10 mean, right? Does it mean that in the new heavens and the new earth, we're going to be sitting in hammocks, sipping sweet tea for all eternity, right? No, that's, that's not what verse 10 means. But what it does mean is that we, when we enter into God's rest, we can finally have our hearts and our souls and our minds at the restful place we long to have them. The love of money. We're going to be free from materialism. We're going to be freed from greed. We're going to be freed from lust. We're going to be freed from envy. We're going to be freed from temptation. Right? Our minds will finally be at rest. Our souls will be 
finally and ultimately fully satisfied and full of joy in the presence of our Savior Jesus Christ. We're not going to long for anything else except Him. We're going to want Him. We're going to want to worship Him and see Him. And in all of our adventures in the new heavens and the new earth, it's going to be all about Jesus. And we're going to be in all of what He has accomplished for us. We're going to be in all of His creation. And we're going to see the glories of the handiwork of Christ as we witness the new creation. And we're going to be at absolute, unimaginable peace and rest. There is no more striving. There is no more battle of the soul raging within you. There is no more deception of sin or thinking that you somehow have to earn your way to God's favor and getting caught up in legalism and Pharisaism. All of it will be washed away. And we will be at rest from our works as we rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. This is what is offered to us. You see, we should not be driven to Jesus solely to avoid eternal wrath and condemnation. We should be driven to Jesus because of the glorious promises he holds out to us. And wanting to experience his rest and his joy and satisfaction in him for all eternity. Listen, brothers and sisters, I don't want to be in that rest without you being there as well. And I hope you feel the same about me. And so let's strive together. Let's take discipleship seriously. Let's literally fear the thought of someone among our body not entering into God's rest. And let's do whatever we need to do to be sure that that doesn't happen. Even if it means we have to have awkward and hard conversations with other people, let's be willing to do that because the other prospect is much more frightening. So let's be a church who is known for the way we care for one another, both physically, but even more importantly, spiritually. And let's be sure no one is left behind. Let's pray together. Father, what a glorious day it's going to be when we fully and finally experience what it means to enter into your rest. And Father, we acknowledge and are thankful for the, the small taste of it that we can get even right here and right now. We, 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 through faith, all those who have trusted in Christ, even right now, you want us to experience some small taste of this rest, of, of what it means to experience a comfort and a peace that surpasses understanding. You want us to experience that right here and right now. Even as this world calls us busyness of life and busyness of our souls, you want us to experience rest and peace in your promises. And so, Father, I pray even, even right now in our lives today, in our lives right now, that we would experience that peace and rest. But yet at the very same time, I pray that it would create within us a longing to enter into your eternal rest. And Father, we pray that you would do what only you are capable of doing and that you would create within us a fear that drives us and motivates us to care for each and every person who is a part of Christ's fellowship Leesville. 
that we would leave no one behind and that we would expend our efforts and our energies to disciple one another in the faith, to bring others along for their good and for the glory of your name. So Father, we ask that you would do it. We ask that you would keep us for your glory and for our good. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.